Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The pre-med year, session number 504. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I have an awesome guest today, Dr. Brian Elliott who wrote a book all about medical traditions. You'd be surprised where some of our paths have come from. And uh, maybe you won't be surprised. They're not the most, uh, um, I don't know, best starts, the most, the most uh, um, authentic and uh, goodwill starts in this, this journey. You may be surprised, maybe not. But we have a, an awesome discussion with Dr. Elliot about his book, White Coat Ways, a History of Medical Traditions and Their Battle with Progress. It is on sale December 2022, or now, if you're listening to this in the future. Before we jump in, though, I want to talk about the MCAT Minutes brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. Did you know that the whole point of this journey is to test you, to, to make sure that you can handle what's to come in medical school and residency and everything else. And one of those ways of testing you is to see if you can juggle classwork, extracurricular activities, MCAT prep, all that fun stuff. And one of the best ways to make sure that you're ready for that MCAT prep is to plan your work. Use the free study planner tool from Blueprint MCAT to help you with that planning. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com. Use their free study planner tool to plan out your study plan based on your specific individual needs, how much work you have, how much family time you have, whatever that may be. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com. Sign up for a free account, get free access to their study planner tool. All right, let's jump in and say hello to Dr. Elliot. Brian, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to chat uh, with you about your book, White Coat Ways. A history of medical traditions and their battle with progress. I love, I love that little uh, uh, subheader. I, I forget what they call that in the book world. I've written lots of books. What do you call that little extra thing? Subtitle. The 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 long title or the running <laughs> the, title. The running title, subtitle, whatever it is. Uh, the battle uh, with progress, because um, I'm sure potentially you would agree that medicine is a very conservative field. And sometimes that's not a good thing. And so I'm interested to see what you have to say. Before we jump in, though, uh, when did you first realize that you wanted to be a physician? Hmm. 
Well, it's going way back now. It, it <laughs> definitely didn't start that way. Yeah. I definitely didn't come into college thinking that I want to do medicine. I started wanting to do physical therapy. Yeah. And so I started taking classes and physiology and everything like that. And I just loved it. And I wanted more of it. And I saw medicine as the perfect way to just get as much medicine as I could and um, continue to do that yeah. as I continue on. So there was a little bit of a switch from like, I like physical therapy. I like what I'm learning, but it's not going to be enough. And so I need to keep going. Yeah, it was, I wanted more than just, you know, more musculoskeletal things. I wanted cardiac and all the other systems and I wanted to really dive in. Yeah. So very similar to my story. Uh, I realized in high school though, because I, I went down the physical therapy route, shadowing a physical therapist in high school. And then I, I cut open a cat in my senior level or senior year biology class. And I was like, ooh, I want to cut things for a living. Uh, <laughs> so so I made the switch very quickly to, uh, to orthopedic surgery as my dream career. Although, uh, as we were just discussing, the Air Force had other plans for me, which is, uh, which is okay, because I, I wouldn't be here probably if, uh, if I went down that other route. So you uh, go down the, the medicine route, you realize, ooh, I, I want more knowledge, I want more impact. What was the hardest part about being a pre-med, do you think, for you? I think I think the competition really gets to you. I, I think there's a lot of stress that we put on ourselves. You know, I got to do this and I got to crush the MCAT and I got to uh, do my applications right, write a beautiful personal statement. And sometimes you forget to stop and smell the roses. Yeah. Do you think that's perceived uh, expectations or do you think those expectations are real? I think a little bit of both. Yeah. I, I think it depends on the person too, but I definitely think a little bit of both. The system is certainly designed for that competition, but even after you get into med school and you get into residency, people often find themselves just putting their head down. Head down doing what? Not stopping the smell of roses, not enjoying what yeah. they're doing. Yeah, I, I was like, I got to publish, I got to do this, I got to do this. It never stops. There, there's always more to do. I was just uh, having a discussion earlier with a, another student for um, uh, an, an, an episode earlier. And we had this discussion, I've been talking about it a lot, is the intentionality of this process and the mindset of my goal is to be an attending physician, right? And that's only the goal. And every single day leading up to that is just a slog leading up to the goal versus waking up. And as you said, right, stopping to smell the roses, just just appreciating every day is, is a win, a goal all by itself. Uh, all of the tests and all of the activities and all of the just everything you have to do to get through this process. I, I don't think enough people take those small wins and victories and and applaud themselves and give themselves credit. They only look at three more years until I'm attending, two more years until I'm attending, one more. And, and that's all they think about. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think that's spot on is, is people are so focused on what's ahead, they're not thinking about what's going on now and not yeah. enjoying it. Yeah. So I'm interested to talk to you because at some point along your journey, you stopped to smell the roses and ask a lot of questions. I, I want to talk about what led you down this path of researching medicine and the history of, of this world to, to be able to write a book. Were you always an inquisitive person? 
I've definitely always been an inquisitive person. I I'm the person who keeps asking why and won't stop until they understand you are that toddler. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and still am that person. Yeah, yeah. my toddler luck- luckily hasn't reached that phase yet, but uh, I, I'm still that person deep down. Yeah, and so what what were those questions for you that led you down this rabbit hole? Well, it started in med school, and I, I didn't set out saying I'm going to write a book about this. I went through the white coat ceremony and the Hippocratic Oath and all the things that we do in medical school. And I was like, why? <laughs> Where did this come from? <laughs> this thing's 3,000 years old. Yeah. Uh, should we really be, you know, using it as our creed? Uh, so I just really looked into those traditions. And then I was like, wow, this is fascinating. I had no idea that the thing I just swore to actually said this. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll write an article and then an article turned into a really long article. (laughs) And then that eventually turned into, okay, there's a lot more and there's a lot more traditions. So I took the seven most common and then turned it into a book. Very interesting. I just want to to say for everyone, uh, this is a common misconception. First, do no harm is not in the Hippocratic Oath. Mm -mm. Where did that Mm -mm. myth come from? Did, Did you research that? Yeah, so that actually comes from Of the Epidemics, which is a a separate thing written in the Hippocratic Corpus, which is this body of work that we attribute to the Hippocratic physicians. And by the way, there there were many, probably. The Hippocratic Corpus wasn't just written by one guy, or at least that's what most scholars agree on. Mm. Whereas the Hippocratic Oath likely wasn't written by any of them not even a Hippocratic physician. And that's a, that's a common misconception. So uh, do no harm actually is more related to Hippocrates than the actual Hippocratic Oath. Interesting. So why do we call the Hippocratic Oath the Hippocratic Oath? Because it sounds nice. <laughs> because it's cooler. <laughs> and we could say it Hippocrates, sounds... the father of yeah. medicine. Exactly. Well, and and we don't know for certain. No one can say this is who wrote it, but... When scholars look at the content of the initial Hippocratic Oath, it's a lot more in line with some other beliefs from other sects of medicine at the time. So it's more believed to be related to Pythagoras and his followers. Yeah. How much, I'm wondering, as you were doing your research, I see, it was just a headline I saw the other day, and I, I don't remember where, about like some super ancient old civilization. And they're like, uh, they probably knew a lot more about medicine and and how our bodies worked and taking care of bodies and doing surgeries on our bodies than we assumed. Like how how much digging? Like you talk about these old dudes doing doing medicine. Like what did that look like back then? Well, it, it depends what time frame. I focus mostly on Hippocrates and, and after, mm. which is really not even the true beginning. Like you yeah. said, I mean, even the Egyptians did what we now do is called, is called burr holes, where they drill a hole into the, yeah, the cranium to drain blood from the surrounding um, outside the brain. And there's evidence that even the Egyptians did something similar back in the day. So mm-hmm. they had a surprisingly impressive knowledge of medicine sometimes. At other times, it's wild, <laughs> the harmful things that they did. It really goes both ways. But even reading, you know, Galen, who was a Roman physician way back when, I could read what he wrote in anatomy and and understand what he meant, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. 
That's very interesting. Let, let's talk about some of those harmful things and, and dive a little bit into the the MDDO world. Uh, I always get a little um, uh, uh, hyperbolic when I talk about the start of the the DO world with AT still sitting in his, his med school classroom going. Why are we bloodletting people? Like it's the 1890s or whatever year it was. Uh, we need we need better better ways. And I'm gonna go make this new career field. How, how much research did you do into the the start of the whole Do philosophy? Oh, quite a lot. And one chapter specifically focuses on MDs and Do's and where they both come from, and mm-hmm. maybe even where they're going next. Yeah. But and and to clarify, if I speak negatively about Do's or M- MDs, back I'm talking about old school, like 1800s, not contemporary, obviously. But yeah, some of the things that they did were very interesting. (laughs) And like you said, A.T. still kind of went rogue. (laughs) It actually happened after his his kids died, Mm -hmm. which is totally reasonable. So he had three children that died of meningitis. And then he invited a doctor to come help treat them along the way. And when that doctor failed, he's like, I don't believe this. You're not, you're not effective, which is not an unreasonable thing. And they weren't very effective back then. I mean, they didn't have antibiotics for meningitis. So he came up with his own ideology, which was that the seed of disease was really in the spine and, and some other concepts that go along with that. Yeah. Uh, and, and where did he go from there? Talk about that journey. Well, to fame and fortune is the short answer. He basically took that ideology and started his own school in in Missouri. Yeah. And he was just, he was such a charismatic person that people really listened. And this was an era where medicine wasn't the scientific method all around. I mean, there were so many different types of physicians. There were homeopaths, eclectics, uh, and, and the, the year of this, this is like late 1800s, correct? Yeah. So his school, I, I want to say, charted in 1891. Yeah. And he quickly got traction and, and got about 700 medical students um, by the turn of the century. Wow. And so he found this fame and fortune, as as you said, maybe for good reasons, maybe for for not so good reasons. Um, is there a lot of history behind? Like, was he super altruistic, or was this a, a play to get famous? Uh, I wouldn't describe him as altruistic. <laughs> oh no, I yeah i i I think he had. I think he believed what he was doing. Yeah, but don't get me wrong, he wasn't. He wasn't living modestly by any means. Okay. Um, but him and D.D. Palmer, who founded chiropractic around the same time, are very interesting because, you know, all these medical organizations were more, I don't want to say culty, but they <laughs> were kind of a little bit, you know, yeah. it was, they idolized their one leader and they had this set of beliefs. It was basing medicine on an ideology and not how we do it today. We, we base it on a methodology, we base it on the scientific method. We do randomized controlled trials and studies, and that's going to show us what's true and what's effective. Yeah. Whereas back then it's, you know, I believe this is the seed of disease. <laughs> I believe in this I read, guy. Cause I read some he, stones and this is what they told me. <laughs> that's, that's exactly true. And even mainstream, you know, traditional MDs, they they were just getting into that scientific revolution. So, yeah. like I said, they they weren't doing the right things then either. 
Yeah, um, let, that let's, was in- let's talk about the MD world because <laughs> even then uh, there was still a lot of I believe and here's here's yeah. here's what I, I saw in a dream and here's why I think I'm going to slit your neck open and, and bloodlet <laughs> you for a little bit. Where, where did uh, kind of modern medicine start for the, the MD world? Well, it was at the same time the MDs were fighting with A.T. Still and D.D. Palmer, but they were also fighting with themselves. Yeah. The so it's basically in- like modern times. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, so no different. Similar, similar. <laughs> we're, we're a bit better now, though. Uh, but uh, they, they had the same transition uh, at the turn of the century. So in 1910 was when the Flexner Report came out. And even before that, there were tons of licensing uh, rules that started to go into play to cut out all the low tier physicians at the time who were really terrible at their job. Yeah. Because medical school back then was whatever you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could go to medical school and graduate in six months because there was no regulation. And professors knew that if they started a medical school, they could get money from students. So it was a ton of for-profit medical schools churning out low tier physicians and it wasn't until they they trimmed out those low tier physicians at the early uh, 1900s that, yeah. that that changed. And and so just for for someone who doesn't know the Flexner report, talk talk about that. This big report that came out that basically was like, we need to do better at at training doctors here. Yes, yeah. So it it started with licensing, and and the ACG E was founded around the same time mm-hmm. too, and and they put forth rules. A medical school has to be three years long. It has to have anatomy. It has to have physiology and et cetera. And state by state started to say, if you don't do these things, you can't practice medicine. Okay. And that started to chip away at some of them. Some of them couldn't keep up because they were for-profit organizations that relied on tuition. And that long of schooling prevented students from coming and paying a bunch of money. So, some of them started to chip away. The others said, well, we kind of have an anatomy lab. We have one cadaver. So <laughs> that it's 20 count. years old. <laughs> <laughs> it's 20 years old. We have 100 students, but it works. And in 1910, Abraham Flexner, who was a, a big med ed guy, toured the country and he visited 155 medical schools. And he trashed them. He yeah. trashed nearly all of them. And he said, these are these are money-making machines. We don't like these. And he praised only a handful. He wanted to cut them down to about 30 medical schools, yeah. which was too radical. But- so, so I'm a big skeptic. And mm-hmm. we talk about, like, we were talking about A.T. Still. Was it altruistic? Was it not? Like, there's something in me that goes, well, Flexner and ACGME and all them, they just wanted all the money to themselves, and they didn't want all of these other people. So if you wanted to be a real medical school, you have to pay us to be accredited. Uh, And, and like, in your research, did you find any sort of, like, mob-like behavior from from that angle? Oh, 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. Just, like... At, no one, no one was really altruistic in this in this journey. Of course not, because what they were essentially arguing for was a monopoly. Of course, they said we we want to be the only provider. Yeah, and and, and guess what? It worked. <laughs> it did. It did. Uh, the interesting thing is, you know, who survived that monopoly? And osteopathic medicine is one of them. Yeah, because there were a lot of antitrust lawsuits. Um, one from chiropractic about fifty years ago. 
saying they can't do this. They can't be the only providers out there. Um, but while it did push quite a bit of a monopoly, it also converted osteopathic medicine to what it is today, which is scientifically based. Mm. Yeah. So I, I, I was reading, um, cultish. Have you read that book? Cultish? I have not. No. Uh, it's it's uh, it's good. I'm about halfway through. I need to pick it back up. But it's it's a book about cults and kind of how they start and a, a lot of a lot of what we consider kind of standard run of the mill stuff these days started in a very cult like fashion. Uh, like an AT Still, who's a very charismatic guy, going, "Hey, come follow me. I know the way." Uh, and and for the first few few while right few whiles um <laughs> the the uh the population is like who's this quack over here um and who are these followers right the very common language that we use it, for cults and after a while it's like oh yeah that's just that's the osteopathic world and obviously that was 200 years ago and we are in a very different place now with with osteopathic physicians being right up there with with allopathic physicians and allopathic the the world uh, allopathic world starting in a very similar way of of you get a few charismatic people that that kind of lead the way um it it's crazy when you go back any anything in our history when you go back and look it's like oh I'm glad it kind of got to where it is now but those were some weird beginnings yeah, I mean, those were the times, you know, you had somebody down the street preaching something that sounded awesome and had yeah. these great results that they were talking about. And you were like, yeah, there wasn't Google. You couldn't yeah. Google and, and see what was going on. So that's how things started. That sounds like a great book, though. I love the uh, Netflix documentaries on cults that yeah. they always put out. Yeah, they're fun. So it's it's funny. I think about uh, kind of where our world is today with social media and and as much kind of uh, the the internet and how everything is so public and and information travels so fast and we look at obviously with the pandemic these last two years you have these frontline doctors the frontline healthcare whatever their their name is pushing ivermectin and doing this I'm like well who's to say in 200 years that we don't look back and go, oh, there's this whole new breed of, of medicine out there that they started and everyone was like, who are these quacks? Uh, and so I, I always, I kind of always think about that in the back of my mind going, should we label them this easily? Should we not? What, what are your thoughts looking forward as, as you kind of talk about progress and, and everything in your book as well? Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic point. But the difference is you wait until the science mm. and there's plenty of randomized controlled trials showing that those things don't work. Yeah. Um, but certainly that we need a little bit of fringe provider to push forward things that eventually do work. Mm. Like when the Dix Hall Pike and Epley maneuvers were first made, those motions that we do with patients to move the otoliths, the stones in their ears for vertigo, people were like, what are you doing? You can't just <laughs> manipulate somebody's head and treat their vertigo. Um, but clearly that showed to be a helpful and that's why yeah. we still do it. So, yeah. It's really about waiting until you see what the science says and then following the science. Yeah. And not just following people who tout things for their own benefit. Yeah. I mean, we we needed the the guy to swallow H. pylori to to, to prove yeah. his point that it's like there's something causing these ulcers down here. Yeah. yeah. That's why medical history is so fascinating. The things that people did to themselves pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. What what was the most interesting thing you found uh, along your research? Ooh, that's a that's a good question. There's a lot of there's a lot of different ones. 
I'd have to I'd have to choose between the most most commonplace misconception that I saw was the Hippocratic Oath. That one was mm-hmm. fascinating to me. The most ridiculous thing that I saw was John Brinkley. So he was a quote physician, which was self attributed uh, around the same time of A.T. Still and D.D. And Palmer, and he felt that he could treat low testosterone by implanting goat testicles into his patients. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, what's better than two testicles? Four. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> yep. No, he, uh, a patient came to him and was like, you know, I'm having these issues. And he's like, well, you wouldn't have these issues if you had goat testicles. <laughs> and the patient was like, yeah, you're right. Let's so- give it a shot. I sold and even paid him. He's like, here, take my money, <laughs> put him in. And what happened to this patient? Uh, Do we know? So John Brinkley said that it worked fantastically. Of course which, he said. <laughs> yeah. which I wrote up a case report. <laughs> <laughs> which biologically does not make any sense, but. Yeah. Like, um, and why goats? I mean, I when I think of like manly testosterone laden animals goats don't don't come top of mind yeah it's what he had that's <laughs> that's the short answer <laughs> it's what he had access to castrate yep oh that's very interesting and where did he put them like did he like do a a, a scronectomy <laughs> like a scrototomy that's... and and open up a scr- and and like oh that's just weird yep, yep. i mean logically you go Hmm. Like why we do a lot of xeno, uh, what do you call that? Xenographic kind of uh, pig valves and this and that. Like, why not? Let's try it. I'm glad he tried it. But I would love to see current data on whether or not, (laughs) right, uh, instead of rubbing testosterone cream on my skin to to get testosterone, if uh, just some some bull testicles right we eat rocky mountain oysters why not implant them and then see how it works you, you give it a shot i mean <laughs> you think i guess an i was IRB just talking about off waiting for the science yeah i was gonna say i'd like to be at that irb meeting that, that reviews the ethics that's very interesting i that's the fun thing about science especially when you think about uh in the past when we were a little bit more loose with with science and obviously uh, some bad stuff happened. Did, did you do any research into some of the bad things like Tuskegee and, and stuff like that? I didn't go into Tuskegee in this one, but uh, what actually is pretty pertinent is the chapter on the Hippocratic Oath goes into the Nazis and some mm-hmm. of the horrible things that they did. I, I mean, they would just freeze people and rewarm them and, and experiment with that. And that bred the Declaration of Geneva, which mm. came right afterwards, which was one of the many iterations of oaths and creeds that that physicians tried. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ho- horrible atrocities. Um, yeah. uh, so that's that's interesting. So uh, some some goat testicles and some Hippocratic oath m- miss uh, uh, attribution. That's interesting. What about our white coat ceremony? Why Why mm-hmm. is the white coat a thing? And nowadays, everyone gets a white coat. It's not even doctors anymore. Nurses and pharmacists and everyone gets a white coat. So where, where did that tradition come from? Why do we still do it? Even though we have data that shows that white coats are these German-laden, uh, gross 
pieces of clothing that we wear. And and that's the biggest irony of it is that they're germ laden, like you said, but they were founded for antisepsis. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is fascinating. And it, it goes all the way back to Lister, Joseph Lister, who was um, a physician in Europe who initially started saying, you know, if we decrease the germs, then the infections for surgical sites will go down. Mm. And it goes a lot into that. And then over time, also at the end of the 1800s, there was a movement. Um, there were a few early photos from Mass General and and the Agnew Clinic in, in Philadelphia that show surgeons really were the ones to start wearing white coats. Mm. And things got kind of caught on from there. There's a little bit more detail to it. But lately, we've we've flipped this. So now the white coat ceremony is all about humanism. And, and that was a, a good transition that happened um, just a couple of decades ago and fairly recent. But we've kind of taken that initial meaning of being antisepsis and we know it's not true so we just kind of change it up a little bit yeah <laughs> we still want to do it uh let's not change tradition let's just kind of rework it to make it logical nowadays that's yeah, perfect that's <laughs> that's one of the themes there is <laughs> as human we'll psychology adjust it yeah yeah europe's pretty interesting because some parts have a bare below the elbows policy yeah so you can't wear sleeves yeah and no ties sleeves yeah and it's no like jewelry, like watches. Why not? And I get frustrated. It's one of my most frustrating uh, aspects. I, I don't practice medicine anymore, but my wife still practices, and she she talks a lot about these these things. And I'm like, well, why? Right? Why? Why? Why do we do that? Uh, well, and most of the time, it's well, that's just because we are doctors and we are held to a higher standard, and this is what patients expect, and this is how we're supposed to present ourselves, and and I think it's just a bunch of BS. Like, we're out there doing some amazing work uh, as doctors, but like, to to put ourselves up on a pedestal to say we have to wear this uniform that we know is not good for people, just so that we can show people, hey, look at me, I'm in a white coat. Um, like, I don't understand. And so, the the battle with progress, as your kind of subtitle says how are we going to proceed forward in in our medical world? Yeah, I mean, well, you just accurately summed up <laughs> the passion that drove me to write this book is, <laughs> is why are we still doing some of these things? And and don't get me wrong, I'm not against all traditions. You know, I, I love Christmas trees and I love, you know, some of the traditions around holidays, but those don't impact patients. Yeah. And white coats do. And what what you find is that people get so attached to the status quo. Some of the backlash that happened in Europe when they cut out white coats for the bare below the elbows policy is just crazy, crazy. The the vehement things that they had to say to rail against it is, is pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, Mayo, I don't, I don't know if Mayo came up in your, your world, but Mayo doesn't do a white coat ceremony, correct? They, they don't uh, they don't believe in that tradition of, of white coats. Did you do any research on that? No, I didn't happen to see that. I would be yeah. very interested to hear hear why and yeah. when that changed. Uh, I, I looked it up recently, and I, I forget already <laughs> what the reasons were, but I don't think it was for a cleanliness thing. Uh, I think it was more for, um, uh, and something I truly believe in, actually, I remember, um, that it's a barrier um, a psychological barrier between the doctor and the patient. And so 
when you go in and you're wearing your white coat, they automatically, the, the patient automatically is like, ooh, you are better than me. You know more than me and and feels at a lower level and potentially they're thinking, and, and something I heard a long time ago when I first started practicing, um, it, it, it puts them at a different level psychologically that they're not comfortable sharing things. They're not comfortable saying, I don't understand what you just told me. Can you repeat it? Uh, and so that's, I'm pretty sure that's why they don't do white coats uh, as part of their kind of tradition at, at Mayo. Uh, it was something that when I was in the military, when I was practicing medicine, and, and the, the military is obviously a little bit different in terms of that, that patient-doctor relationship, especially as a flight surgeon. I would introduce myself by a first name. And and I did that specifically for that same reason of if I go in and say, hey, I'm Dr. Gray, you're automatically putting yourself at another level. And and I want them to try to see me as a, a peer and a partner in this this process of, of healthcare. And I understand from uh, uh, obviously my wife being a physician from from lots of friends who are, are women physicians and, and that whole kind of experience in the from a, a woman's point of view of like well they they don't even believe I'm a doctor because I'm a woman and so they they introduce themselves as doctor I'm perfectly okay with that right just understanding that perspective as well yeah and I I think Mayo makes a great point there too because psychiatry and pediatrics especially have gone away from the white coat mm-hmm. for that reason is that it, it's standoffish a little bit a little paternalistic to the patient yep. that you represent the establishment and i don't want to give all my information away to the establishment yeah um yeah, yeah. and i there are some studies about how patients perceive it too and you know unfortunately those studies also show that there is a gender bias um, which is is definitely something to consider in this yeah. Um, the other thing I'd say too is that for the people who do ditch the white coat, the you know your classic Patagonia jacket, the new white coat, is still covered with it's, germs. It's still covered <laughs> with germs. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's the fact that you're wearing something the <laughs> every day, all day, uh, and not washing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's where we forget the the original point. The point was to be clean. Yeah. And we're forgetting that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see surgeons wearing it. Like, I just was in a, a brutal surgery um, where there was, of course, only like 100 cc's of blood loss because that's all there ever is. But, but the surgeon's covered in blood and whatever. And they put on their, their white coat to, like, cover it up and be be clean. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that, I mean, logically makes sense. Like, let me cover it up so it's not scary for someone to see me covered in blood, whatever. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you they used to love stuff. that. They used to love that and actually accumulate it intentionally. So when they first did those surgeries, they had a smock that they didn't change at all, especially not between surgeries, that accumulated a, a, a good surgical stink. That's gross. <laughs> That's very yeah. gross. So let, let's talk about more progress stuff here. Um, we mm-hmm. Going back to kind of that white code and, and the establishment angle, we're in a period of time now with the pandemic where anti-science, anti-expert, anti-physician, anti-vaccine, anti-everything is kind of the the fun uh, soup of the day. How do we, um, whether it's some of our own kind of uh, history and traditions that are keeping us uh, from having better connections with with our future patients, how do we how do we get more progress here? Oof, if I could answer that question, <laughs> I would be 
I would be way higher up than I am right now. Because <laughs> uh, that is that is an existential existential question that is healthcare's issue right now. Yeah. Uh, I think part of it is is being real and transparent with the patients. And you know, certainly appreciating their point of view because if you look at it from a historical side, there there are a lot of reasons to doubt mainstream medicine. I mean, like we were just talking about, there are some bad things that we've done. We certainly don't do those things anymore, but um, I think just being transparent with what we're doing and why we're doing it is is a good start. Yeah. And as you said, right, understanding their point of view, I think we we too often, I, I get very mad when I see doctors flouting their um uh, my my medical degree is better than your Dr. Google or wh- whatever the, the saying is about Dr. Google. And I actually wrote an article uh, about it a while ago. Like we shouldn't put patients down for Googling their symptoms and coming to mm-hmm. us with, hey, this is what WebMD says. Hey, this is what whatever says. We, we have to be okay with them coming in, doing their own research because that's what they're going to do. Uh, we we have to keep those lines of communication open and uh, having empathy into their frustration, into the system, into their fear about what may what they may have based on what they read on the internet. We have to be empathetic to that, or else we're just going to continue to drive a wedge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, back in the day, they were intentionally shrouding medical knowledge. They were naming yep. everything in Latin to torture medical students and keep patients a little bit in the dark. And it worked for them because they were paternalistic, but this is the 21st century and we have things like Google and a lot of online resources and we should use them to our advantage. Yeah. So when you think about the audience listening to this, going to be a lot of pre-med students, what do you hope they get out of reading your book? I hope they look at the things that they're going to see along the way and they also ask why and make sure that they get a good answer for it. Because to me, just because we've always done it that way is is not a good reason for doing things in healthcare. All right. So there you have it. Dr. Brian Elliott, author of White Coat Ways, A History of Medical Traditions and Their Battle with Progress. A great discussion with Brian about where we've come from and hopefully where we're going. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to check out blueprintmcat.com. Sign up for that free account. Get access to that study planner tool. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.